Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week, Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. So for this first episode, we're going to begin with just Matthew chapter 6. And that's kind of a treat to get to to have just one chapter and we can uh, really dive in and explore this one well. Just to catch us up to speed, if you look at this chapter in its context, it's the middle chapter of three uh, chapters on the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, he began with the Beatitudes and then he gave us that series of upgrades to the Law of Moses. And now in chapter 6, instead of saying, you have heard that it has been said of them of old, but behold, I say unto you, and then giving you that, that higher law of the gospel. In chapter 6, he's going to take these common Christian behaviors, almsgiving, prayer, fasting, forgiving, these things that any follower of Christ would be expected to do as part of their, their discipleship, and he's going to show us a pattern of how to become more like him. So this part of the law of the gospel is kind of a blueprint for, for proper Christian uh, behavior. So let's jump in with our first Christian behavior and, and watch how Jesus discusses this not in a do things for the glory and the, the honors of the world, but because we're actually trying to become more like Jesus. Uh, it's one of those great general conference talks on this subject given by President Henry B. Eyring. Try, try, try. There's, there's a lot of symbolism here that ties in there that we just try a little harder to be a little better in all of these make adjustments. In fact, uh, it was President Eyring in a different talk where he said, if you want to make major improvement in your life, don't try to change big things, but rather look for small things that get repeated often in your life and make an incremental improvement in how you do those little things and over time the sum effect is that you will see large improvement. And I think that fits in beautifully here with what we're going to talk about in chapter 6. And one of the teaching approaches Jesus seems to employ is using many case studies to teach key principles that should guide your life. So as we're looking at this chapter, one of the key principles show up right here at the very beginning. It says, take, take heed that you do not your alms before men. The New International Version translation would say, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So that is kind of the theme that Jesus is trying to teach this principle, and then he uses several examples, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, about ways that people have misused those righteous activities to kind of show off their righteousness, and what we could be doing as disciples to still engage in those good activities without showing off righteousness. So as you're reading this, look for how is Jesus using examples to teach principles that can guide our lives. 
Now, some of you, when you when you hear verse 1, it, it may cause you to pause and say, hold on, wait a minute, I thought back in chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, the Savior had told the people, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and by seeing those good works, glorify your Father which is in heaven. And now some of you might be perplexed, saying, how can we have it both ways? Because in one, it seems like he's saying, let everybody see what you're doing, and here he's saying, don't give alms before men to be seen of them. I don't know all of the reasons for why the wording is exactly the way it is here compared to over in chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, but I think it's interesting that in, in that Matthew 5 account, he didn't tell you to do your works so that people would see you and so that people would give you the honor. He said, do your good works, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You leave behind you a trail of good works without sitting around waiting for people to give you the credit or, or to give you a receipt for all of the good things that you've done, and that would tie in beautifully with what's going on here with chapter 6, verse 1, this idea of don't, don't draw the attention to you. Draw people's attention to the good works so they can glorify God rather than you. And he then gives the opposite in verse 2, notice this, um, therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, let's just be very clear here with, with the cultural setting and the cultural context and what this would have sounded like to those first-century Jewish disciples listening to this speech. In fact, if you were to get in a time machine and go back 2,000 years to Galilee and get out of that time machine and walk up to anybody and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a hypocrite. Where can I find a hypocrite? What would, a, what would any Greco-Roman or Jewish uh, individual in the first century in, in Judea or Galilee say? They would look at you and say, you, you want the hypocrites? Go to the theater. Go down to the theater because they're probably putting on a play tonight. So the word hypocrite in English comes from actually two words in the Greek to interpret from underneath. Um, it's this idea of a, a Greek or a Greco-Roman stage actor. Since they don't have uh, any electronic magnif voice magnification or microphone systems, speaker systems, their theater is built in a nice shape to be able to echo the voice so they're really, the, the actors can be heard, and then they would hold up terracotta masks with little funnels in the, the mouth so it would help project the voice as well. And an actor could go off stage, take one terracotta mask, put it down, take off a, a cloak or some uh, costume, put on a different one, pick up a different mask, use different body language, body movements, and a different voice and go out on stage, and people would have no clue that this is a different person because they're so drawn into that character. Look at your footnote 2a. It says, Greek, the pretenders. The Greek word means a play actor, or one who feigns, represents dramatically, exaggerates a part. It's somebody who goes into character to play out this part on the stage 
for the benefit of trying to entertain or, in some cases, deceive an audience into believing this story and make it feel real, like it's reality, when in fact I go off stage, I take off my costume, and I go home, and I'm not that guy that I played on the stage anymore, or those four different roles that I was able to play as a Greco-Roman hypocrite. Now, some of you might be thinking, so what does this have to do with us today, and why do I care? Because in our definition of hypocrite, it's usually somebody who says one thing and does another, mm-hmm. but you see in Jesus's first-century context how powerful this was. He's basically inviting disciples, stop pretending, stop putting on a costume and going into character, remove the mask, remove the costumes, remove the, the fake voices and the fake body language, and just be you at yeah. the core. Be authentic. Be authentic as, as a disciple of Christ. And so in giving alms, it's that idea of don't go out, hey, look look what I'm doing, look, look at this kind deed that I'm doing, but rather you just do the kind deed without trying to, to be in character so people are applauding you in the congregation as they, or in the crowd as they watch. So as we continue reading verse 3, he says, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Now again, when Jesus is teaching, sometimes we take these things so literally that we miss possibly the principles he's trying to teach. And I don't know, is it in every circumstance of my life, my left hand is not supposed to be in sync with my right hand? I mean, how would I drive a car or, you know, you know hold anything? And so we have to be careful here that when we listen to Jesus, we also listen to his ancient context that he's trying to illustrate a principle and using really clear examples that you think about these ancient listeners would have gone home and had something to talk about. These would have been very memorable phrases. And the point was to generate conversation, to get clarity around a principle so that people would live principles that would draw them closer to God. So it really doesn't mean that you should have no synchronicity among your hands if you want to be a little reader, but the principle is you shouldn't be trying to magnify yourself in the eyes of the world. You can magnify God. You can do good. Let him do the magnification. So these stories here, these mini case studies, are trying to get people to think about a core principle about Do not put your righteousness on display. Let God be expressed through you. And so now we go to, so that was verse 1 through 4, and by the way, the the reward in verse 4 is beautiful. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And now we, we come into the section of prayer, starting in verse 11. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, once again, actors, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. It's as if there are people who say, ah, I'm going to put on a production today, and I'm going to show people how righteous and holy and how long and detailed my prayers are compared to theirs. And so, later on, you're going to find in Matthew 23 where Jesus 
addresses more specifically some of these issues of some of these hypocrites, so to speak, who actually extend the length of the tassels on their prayer shawls, and they make their phylacteries bigger than everybody else's, as if to this outward costume to show, look how much more righteous I am than, than all of these common people around here. Look how, look how many scriptures and how, how effective my prayers are compared to everybody else. And Jesus is, is attacking that idea of don't have this be for show. You're not putting on a production. You're talking to the God of the universe, and he's not going to look at what you're wearing. He's going to look at your heart. It's not outward. It's inward. Uh, verse 6, but when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which seeth in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So this is where we should talk again. Could you imagine if we read this literally, the only place you could pray would be in a closet, and if you happen to live in a culture that didn't have any, you could never talk to God. So this is where we have to be a little careful not to be extremely literal, but he's trying to make a point that your purpose of prayer is not to get the praise of men. It's to be in communion with God. And as an example, one way to do that is to shut the world out, and a closet would be one way of doing it. So Jesus is inviting you to think about the principle, and you could say to yourself, what are other ways that I can be in communion with God and not advertising myself to the world? It could be actually out of nature. It could be in a temple. It could be in a church meeting. There's lots of places. We have to make sure we don't box Jesus in to very specific things that he only wants us to hang out in closets to, to, to find him. So now in verse 7, he gives us another, uh, another part of this prayer commandment. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Again, vain repetition is going to include anything, anything, any word, phrase, or practice within the act of prayer that allows me to, quite frankly, zone out, to, to just kind of go through the motions, jump through the hoop to check the box that says, yep, I said my prayers today. So these are helpful perspectives, and I know there's been lots of conversation over the years about what it means to be vain repetition. The word vain means empty or without purpose, as Tyler has been expressing. So the invitation here, again, is for authenticity, to have purpose and meaning behind what you do. I smile a bit as I think about my, my son David years ago when he was a child and we had been reading scriptures and he learned how important it was not to do vain repetitions in his prayers. And I remember uh, several weeks went on where every night he would pray, Lord, help me not to have vain repetitions in my prayers. And he would say it every night. And then we finally had to say, you know, that might be a vain repetition. I have a friend who serves in a state presidency and he pointed out something interesting to me. He said, again, this is kind of his personal thought, but I found it compelling. He said, I wonder if we make the sacrament prayers a vain repetition. I said, well, tell me more. He said, how many of us really take the time to really think about the words of the prayer? And if we aren't really authentically engaged in hearing the words of the prayer, it might feel like a vain repetition. And he said, what if the young men are just rushing through the prayer as fast as they can, and we just jump right into the prayer, right after the song, and there's just no break, there's no time to actually 
listen and hear the prayer and have every word be pronounced with meaning. And he says, I don't know. What if, what if we spent more time giving these prayers with purposeful intent? And I don't think he's trying to say that sacrament meetings generally don't have purposeful intent, but it got me to think more seriously about, am I listening to those prayers? Am I teaching the young men in my ward when they give the prayer to do so deliberately, without rush, to give pause where it's necessary for people to hear the power of those words? So those are various ways we can be looking at what Jesus talks about vain repetitions, and those might just be some ways of considering it. Yeah, and if you look at verse 8, he gives us another step. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. This is a really important point. When, when I kneel down to pray, I don't think Heavenly Father's up in, in heaven rubbing his hands together saying, oh good, finally I get to find out what, what Tyler's thinking. I, I get to find out what he's feeling. I hope he'll tell me all about his day. Brothers and sisters, when I pray, I don't teach God anything that he doesn't already know perfectly, past, present, future, about – he knows me infinitely better than I know me. He's commanded me to pray not because he needs to discover things about me, but because I need to discover things about him and about myself in the attitude of prayer. So when I kneel down, I'm not trying to tell God anything he doesn't already know. I'm trying to discover things that God already knows about me and about my day. And so I thank him and I ask him and I pour my heart out to him and I, I move forward in faith trying to, to listen so I can hear the voice of the Spirit speaking the 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 things that I need to know to move forward in that next phase of my covenant connection with God in my discipleship. That's such a great invitation. I really, really appreciate you share that. Jesus shares then these principles about how to pray. He uses this phrase, after this manner, therefore pray ye. Now again, he's not saying, I want you just to say these exact words for the rest of your life and no other type of prayer. He's giving a pattern based on principles, and if you look at what we call the Lord's Prayer, we can see the principles for the kinds of things that we should be talking to God about and even a structure for how to pray. So again, don't feel like you have to do everything word for word. I don't think that's what God's intending here, but he's inviting you to think on principle, what kind of things should I be talking to God about? So I am very excited to introduce a dear friend, I would even say a brother of mine, Ferris Azar. He is a, a tour guide over here, actually in Israel, a local guide, but he has a very interesting background. Tell him about your, your religion. I belong to the Aramaic Orthodox uh, denomination, Christian denomination in Israel, and uh, this is one of the first um, denominations here in the country and the unique thing is till now we still speak the language of Jesus, the language he spoke, part of the Bible was written in Aramaic, many of the disciples spoke Aramaic and this is a privilege, this is something we are proud of that we still keep the language of our Lord. Love it, so we're going to ask Ferris, th this is a real treat, uh, 
we're going to ask Ferris to, to share with us the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, the way his disciples would have, have heard him speak it. Sure, you got it. Simlabo labro ruho qadiso hadaloho shariro amen. Abonit bashmayo nitqa dashishmo. Tithe malkuto newe sibiono. I cannot bashmayo. Of baro hablan. Lahmo simkolan. Yawmonot washbuklan hawban wahdohai. Lo talam nisiono. Elo fasolai. Men bi shometu. Tilo himalkuto. Hailo tishbuhto. La olam almin. Amen. Amen. It's got a beautiful, beautiful cadence, beautiful sound to it. Thank you for sharing that with us. So now let's get the English version. Our Father, which art in heaven. I like the fact that this prayer begins with two words, our Father, because here's Jesus with the group and he's speaking in first person plural, our Father. He's pulling us into this, this familial relationship with him, speaking to our Father, which art in heaven. It's, it's a beautiful uh, thing to consider all the titles, all of the ways that we could address the sovereign, most powerful, most all-knowing being in the whole universe, but he wants us to call him Father. Uh, there's, there's something beautiful there. So, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, this reverential respect and awe. Verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Coming from the lips of Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's, that is his whole life. Jesus' everything he does is to establish the kingdom of God on the earth and to have his will done. This is probably a really good place to introduce this idea that there is a notion in, in general Christianity and sometimes even in, in the way we talk in, in the church about the end of everything. When all is said and done, we often talk about we'll die, we'll get resurrected, and we'll go to heaven and be saved and enter into our exaltation. The reality from the New Testament, from the teachings of Jesus, is he is making earth an outpost of heaven. He's not going to take us off of this earth and take us to heaven to save us on fluffy white clouds. He's bringing heaven here. He's going to celestialize this earth. He, he's going to resurrect us. We don't, we don't leave this body and this earth behind to, to ascend to heaven. We are caught up to meet him and then we come down in the millennium. This concept is taught by N.T. Wright, a, a Christian scholar over in England this idea that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's, he's going to celestialize this planet. It's beautiful doctrine when you consider our responsibility to build up the kingdom of God on the earth and to take care of the earth and to take care of our bodies to the best we can because 
they're all going to be celestialized someday. I'm glad you made that point because I know for many years of my life when I was younger, I would wait, hope, I want Jesus to come and just solve everything. I want him to bring that kingdom. And as I've looked at these passages and as you're talking, it's clear, we're all invited to be part of spreading the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So will Jesus come and make things even better? Yes. Should we wait for him to do it? No. He has asked us to join now in making earth more like heaven. Make the kingdom of God spread on the earth, and we'll have a more heaven-like experience. That's the invitation. In the face of all the challenges that we all are pretty clear about seeing in the world, we can make the world a better place if we follow Jesus as we see laid out here in the scriptures. And the next verse says, give us this day our daily bread. It reminds me of being out 40 years in the wilderness. What did he do for the people? Manna. Manna for 40 years, the bread, the staff of life every day. He does the same for us. Uh, if you look at the uh, Book of Mormon teachings on this, you, you're, we're invited in Alma chapter 33 to, to pray over everything, pray over our flocks and our fields and our houses and our homes and our families, children. It, it's kind of this idea of give us this day our daily bread, what we need to be able to, to survive and, and thrive. And then verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Joseph Smith changed the beginning part of that to say, and suffer us not to be led into temptation because the idea of God leading us into temptation doesn't really fit. And so he's saying, please don't, don't even allow us to to be led into temptation by whatever influence would take us that direction, but deliver us from evil. And an ancient Jewish prayer was similar. The idea was they would pray, if we come upon trials or tests, let us not fall or fail at them. And so we can see various things. The Joel Smith's perspective that God is not going to lead us into temptation, although he will allow us to be tried and tested. We might, like the ancient Jews, say, Lord, Bless me that I do not fall as I am testing, as I am being tested. And then he finishes his prayer with this line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's, it's a beautiful thing to consider that sometimes we think about coming unto Christ. Remember that when you come unto Christ, his whole purpose is to perfect you and to prepare the world, the kingdom, to be presented spotless to the Father. As Doctrine and Covenant section 76 verse 107 states that, that it's presented, it's, the kingdom is given to the Father. Jesus doesn't keep it for himself. He gives all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the kingdom to the Father, including you as part of that kingdom. And then he goes to two verses where he discusses the, the Christian behavior of forgiveness. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's an attribute of God to be able to forgive. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't know of any principle of the gospel that is more plainly laid out 
then verse 14 and 15, it's just so if-then, simple, and it's coming from the Savior here saying, if you want to be like God, you have to learn how to forgive, even when people don't deserve it. It seems like a pretty sweet deal. It is. Forgive a lot of people and you'll get a lot in return. And then in verse 16 through 18, we come to the Christian behavior of fasting. Again, this idea of, like, let's not show off our righteousness. Again, Jesus is sticking to these principles, alms, prayer, and fasting, three different case studies of how you can be righteous and a warning, don't do it for other people. Do it for God. Do it for yourself. Beautiful. So it's this idea of don't even let people know you're fasting. Do it secretly. Do it inwardly. Um, Wash your face. Uh, He's not saying you have to do that literally every single time. The implication is don't walk around with a long face saying, yeah, I'm fasting again for the third time this month, and people, wow, he's righteous. Wow, look at look at how many times he's fasting and how long he's fasting. He's saying, don't, don't do this for people to see. Now you go to verse 19, and he's talking about treasures. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. You can spend your entire life seeking for money and treasures, things that this world would value. And he's saying moth and rust eventually corrupt. Time will corrupt all of the treasures of the earth. And so his solution is, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. My wife uh, on occasion has shared this thought of try to do something every day that will stay done, that won't dirty. You know, you do the dishes, you do the laundry, you sweep the floor, you vacuum, you mow the lawn, you paint. All of those things eventually get undone, and you, and you have to do them, so we keep doing those. But I like that idea of find something that you can do, just as little as it may be, every day that will stay done, that won't get undone. A kind word, a kind deed, a thoughtful uh, act of service for someone or a gift, or a phone call where it doesn't get undone. You're, you're laying up treasures for yourself. And then this beautiful line in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Have you noticed that your heart's desire actually aims your direction of life? The more you think about and desire something, the more you focus on it, and the more you go in that direction. Well, if you do that with the earth's treasures, that's where you're going to spend all of your time and your energy and your effort trying to attain. But if our heart is turned heavenward to Christ, to Heavenly Father, that's the direction we're going to face, and then we're going to reflect heaven's love for other people. It's just a beautiful principle. Well, then we have in verse 22 and 23 the concept of light beautiful images of Jesus as light in section 93 that you can cross-reference. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body full of light. But if thy eye, thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, it turns out as fallen nature humans, all of us at times struggle with not having all the light in our eye that we want. Again, Jesus is using 
as a good teacher, very stark contrast, light and dark, to teach a principle that we should be pursuing after the light of Jesus in our souls, in our lives, so we can have that joy. And if we are pursuing darkness, if we're pursuing the treasure of this earth, nothing else, then we are missing the opportunity to have God's light with us. So our hope is that nobody feels overwhelmed that if they may have messed up at some point, that that means that they're forever full of darkness. And then this next couple of verses are quite interesting. Again, he's using a small case study or to explain some principles. He says, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the idea is, imagine if you had two bosses who both had equal sway on your time and your responsibilities. At what, I mean, and what if they both gave contradictory claims on your time? Who would you serve? You would have to serve one at the expense of the other or vice versa. And what, God, what Jesus is trying to say is that you cannot, in the long run, you truly cannot be on the devil's side in his kingdom and also experience all that God wants for you. You just can't. And so it is a stark contrast, and obviously there's a lot of gray in our lives as we are making our way into God's kingdom, but the point is to make this clear difference. Seek and strive to be serving God's interests, and as much as possible be aware where you're not, because ultimately, if you don't serve God's interests, your interests will not be served. Now, this next section, beginning in verse 25, is about his disciples going out to, to preach the gospel. He says to them, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? And then he gives this beautiful analogy, Behold the fowls of the air, and it makes you wonder if there was a flock of birds overhead right at that mm. moment as he points, because he is so able as the master teacher to use things that, that really connect with people, and that from then on, they'll be able to remember this. Next time they see a flock of birds, the, the memory of his voice echoing in their mind, consider these, these fowls up in the air. They sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? They're creatures. They were created by him, but you aren't a creature. You are a child of God. You, you have capacity to, to grow up to become more like him. Now, verse 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And then he compares it to Solomon, the richest, most prosperous king in possibly the history of the ancient Near East. Of all the kings, this guy excelled all of them in wisdom and in, and in riches. And he's saying, look at the lilies of the field, these, these flowers that are growing here in the Galilee, and you can imagine the people looking at them, and he's saying they're not toiling, they're not laboring, but God gives them the raiment that they need. Uh, it reminds me of a, a family history story of my great-grandpa living in Clarkston, Utah. He had been called on a mission, and back then these men are called on missions from general conference, from the pulpit, 
and then they would have to leave their families, their wives and children, their farm, and go on the mission. Well, that was his situation, and he didn't have a ton of extra money, and his shoes weren't great. He was walking across a field in the city center there in Clarkston, Utah, when he looked down and saw a gleam and picked up a silver $5 coin, and he thought, perfect, answer from heaven, I'm going to be able to go and buy a nice pair of new shoes to serve this mission because it costs $5 at the time. And then the thought came, take that coin to brother so-and-so because he doesn't have any shoes. And the thought was, well, maybe I'll go buy the new shoes and give these old ones to him. I've always been inspired by my great-grandpa who acted on that, and he went and gave that $5 coin to this brother who was able to go and buy shoes so he could go on the mission. And then at one point serving on his mission, now there are holes in the bottom of his shoes. They've worn out. There's there's nothing left. And once again, walking on a road, one day he looked down and saw a gleam, and there was another $5 coin that he was able to find and go and get shoes. That, to me, is the epitome of what Jesus is teaching in in this chapter, is we live in a world that wants to hoard everything for ourselves, and he's saying, can you trust me? (laughs) I hold worlds without number in my hand. I clothe the the flowers of the field, and I take care of the birds of the sky. I will take care of my servants. I will provide for them as the needs arise. It's it's a, a powerful concept on the covenant path for us. And he concludes this thought with, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the end of the day is the evil thereof. So concluding this part of the Sermon on the Mount is we seek God's righteousness. Jesus began with, don't try to seek your own righteousness and don't try to display righteousness. Seek God's righteousness and everything will work out. And we invite you to think about times in your life when you have seen that be true. And if you haven't documented it, take the time to write it down or share as appropriate with others how you have seen God's promises in your life when you have sought his righteousness and he has given you the blessings that he has in store. It's a powerful invitation, Taylor, especially when we we look to the past to see where God has done that for us to then inspire us in the present to go and seek his kingdom and to seek to build up the kingdom as we move forward with him on the covenant path into a glorious future. And this is part two, the second episode, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, the the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And we've mentioned this before, but it's it's a good exercise to compare and contrast what you see in the speech given to his Jewish disciples over in Israel with what he teaches his Nephite and Lamanite disciples in the Americas. So you can line up Matthew chapter 5 through 7 with 3 Nephi 12 through 14 and do those comparisons and you'll see some subtle differences. So notice how 
chapter 7, verse 1 reads, it says, Judge not that ye be not judged. But if you look at the 3 Nephi 14 account, it says, And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he turned again to the multitude and did open his mouth unto them again, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Judge not that ye be not judged. So you get these contrasts between the two. I guess I shouldn't let my left hand know what my right hand's doing, right? We're, we're going with two continents here. Notice that he's speaking some of those things from the chapter right before this just to his apostles when they're going out doing their work, and now he turns to the multitude with this statement, judge not that ye be not judged. With the Joseph Smith translation, it becomes a clearer statement of you need to judge, but make sure you judge righteously. In fact, think about it this way. What can you do to judge without being judgmental? Um, if you if you consider the book of Moroni chapter 7, where the prophet Mormon says to the people in the synagogue, I will show on you, unto you the way to judge in verse 16 and 17. For if something inviteth you to believe in God or persuadeth you to do good, you can know with perfect knowledge that that's good, and the opposite is also true. So the Book of Mormon actually shows you how to judge righteously. One of the most um, beautiful talks I've seen to interpret this whole concept was given by President Dallin H. Oaks. It's on judging and judging righteously, and he talks about different kinds of judgment, and it's fascinating coming from him mm -hmm. because he was a lawyer and then became a Supreme Court justice in the state of Utah. He, he knows how to judge. This was his profession before he became an apostle. Uh, so he talks about different kinds of judgment, that there are intermediate judgments and then there are final judgments. That is not our role but we have to make those kinds of judgments all the time, every day we have to make intermediate judgments, and it's important to judge righteously on those, those uh, elements of life that, that we have to make some decisions. Well, he goes on to clarify this principle that anciently would have been clear to people, but he makes it even clearer. He uses these examples, and listen, we've all heard this before, but trying to illustrate how we can get judgment wrong, he uses this. Verse 3, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? So, let's actually translate this into English. If you have a telephone pole sticking out of your eye, how in the world are you going to do surgery on somebody else's eye to get sawdust out of theirs? It's really hard to judge appropriately when you have such a big problem you need to solve first. And if you can get that removed, repent, change, then you'll see more clearly where other people might have an opportunity to grow and improve as well. So Jesus, as master's teacher, starts with the principle, right, judge righteously. He doesn't explicitly say the word righteous, but then he uses this little case study, and he uses an exaggerated story. I mean, nobody's ever going to walk around with a telephone pole or a house beam sticking out of their eye, but it's so illustrative. Anybody would go home after the speech, and for weeks and years afterwards, remember, remember how he taught that principle that if I'm going to be making judgment about other people, I need to start looking first into my own heart. Very powerful. 
very yeah, powerful and, invitation. And, and if you look at verse two, it, it adds even more powerful to uh, it adds more power rather to that analogy. He says, "For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again." Oh, this is such an important principle to consider how I look at people and how I pass those judgments, realizing that's how I'm going to be judged. Hence the need to be so kind and so compassionate and so forgiving and so empathetic with people. Uh, I love the line from the Journal of Joseph Smith when he said, uh, ever keep in exercise the principle of mercy and be ready to forgive a brother on the first intimations of forgiveness and asking repentance. And then Joseph Smith took it one step further. He said, and should we even forgive a brother before he asks us to forgive him? Our God would be equally as merciful to us. There's a principle where we could try a little harder to be a little better, and if we keep trying and we keep making little improvements over time, it will result in a very large uh, improvement in our life, to, to hearken back to the, the concept from President Eyring that we talked about in the first episode. I'll give a brief story about this. My son David has been very diligently mowing our lawn over the last couple of years. We got a new lawnmower recently, and I noticed that there were ridges in the lawn where the grass didn't look like it had been cut. And me thinking I'm a really dutiful, instructive dad, I'm like, I keep pointing out these errors in the lawn. And my son started feeling a little stressed out because he actually was working pretty hard and being very diligent, and he actually was quite proud of the work he had done, and yet I'm like, look, there's still grass here that hasn't been cut. Well, he got busy with some school activities once, and I had to cut the lawn. And I'll say again, we had bought a new lawnmower when all these problems started. And I'm saying, oh, it's my son. He's, his quality's dropped. And as I get done mowing the lawn, I look back, and I'm like, there's all these spots that didn't get done properly. And so I wrote an email to my son. He was at school, and I said, I need to apologize because it's not you. It's, it's the device. And when he came home, I apologized again. I had a bit of a beam in my eye that I didn't realize because we had this new device that wasn't working properly. And the invitation, one of the invitations is, are we slowing down enough to understand where people are coming from, their context, what's motivating them to act, and what's often surprising, massive plot twists in life, is we learn that often what people are doing has a good reason that we didn't initially understand, and often they have good intent, and maybe but the outcome was different than they expected or we expected. I love that example. You know, this reminds me of, of something that I learned from Grant Anderson many years ago in a, in a seminary institute training setting. He talked about the Sermon on the Mount and how it's, it's this covenant path, this progression back to God, and if you consider it as this, this path taking us to, to become more like God, and he talked about how on the path, there are various off-ramps, ways that people can get off and deviate from the covenant path. And if you look back in chapter 6, it started with giving alms to be seen of men or praying and fasting to be seen of men. So an off-ramp on the covenant path is to start doing things for the wrong reason, to be seen of men. And now we've jumped into chapter 7, 
and the Lord is giving us another caution to disciples on the covenant path, don't get off by looking down judgmentally at other people. Don't judge unrighteously because that's an off-ramp. The only time we should be looking down the path at somebody is with a look of compassion and empathy and Christ-like love to reach out and encourage them and lift them up and help, you know, wipe off the, the stained knees and the, the bruises that they've experienced and encourage them to move forward. So I love the fact that as you look at these, he's not just teaching you how to move forward, he's also giving us these cautions of be aware. There, there are these exit ramps and they're very enticing and just be aware of them. I'll tell just a very brief story to illustrate this further. Years ago, I moved out to Washington, D.C. with my wife. So we're living in Washington, D.C. It's a very large city, lots of roads, it's new for me, and I found myself often getting on the wrong road and discovering myself being somewhere I didn't intend to be. By the end of that summer, I didn't get lost hardly ever at all. Why? I knew where all the off-ramps were going to take me, and I realized I don't want to go on that one because I know where it goes. And it taught me this principle that sometimes in life we're working hard at things and things don't work out and we find ourselves somehow off the path, and yet there's this opportunity to come back. Whether we purposely walked off the path or inadvertently found ourselves off for whatever reason, that's the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's this everlasting welcoming arms of come back. You can come back in. There is no off-ramp that is permanent unless you choose to make it permanent. Well said. Now, this next concept that he uh, takes us to starts in verse uh, 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your, your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. So it's this idea of sometimes we share things that are too sacred, and he's using hyperbole, speaking of swine and dogs. Um, dogs were not man's best friend in first century Jewish contexts like they are today, and swine are the most unclean of all of the unclean animals to a first-century Jewish audience. It's, this seems to be this appeal to keep sacred things sacred. For instance, we don't go around giving people a copy of our patriarchal blessing or sharing deep spiritual and personal uh, intimate kinds of revelations that God has given us or that are shared in a, in a family setting. But it's interesting, moving on from this, the similar concept that God says, I want to give you more if you know how to treat it responsibly. He says, ask and you shall be, it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. So God is not trying to keep us from having pearls. But he is saying, if you can be responsible with what I am willing to give you, I will give you even more. Isn't that fun in English, this acronym, how it works? And, and that is one of the most commonly repeated commandments in all of Scripture across the standard works, is this command to ask. God works 
uh, among the children of men according to their to their faith. We have to ask in in many cases before those blessings are given. And then we seek him and we knock on the door of heaven. Don't you love that in English how that works out? With with ask being the acronym here for ask, seek, and knock. And I would just suggest that symbolically this ultimately happens uh, in the temple of our God. The, the veil of the temple represents this beautiful uh, analogy of being the flesh of Christ, to, to reference the, the epistle to the Hebrews. We enter into heaven by coming through the veil, and it's there we come to Christ to ultimately ask and to seek and to knock on that door of heaven in hopes that it will open up to let us in. And look at the promise that he gives in verse 8. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. He didn't leave a lot of qualifier qualifiers there. He, he just left it pretty straightforward. You ask, seek, and knock, and you're going to get things. He didn't tell you when you're going to get them. He didn't tell you how you're going to get them or in what proportions you're going to get them. He just promised that you would receive all of those, those blessings. I like these two next verses. Imagine a Sea of Galilee context. Most of these people live on bread and fish, and in their culture, it was kind of the father's job to be the breadwinner, to provide the bread and fish for the family. So they all understand what a good father, what a good mother should be doing for their children. And what does Jesus say? Trying to illustrate God's qualities of giving if you ask. Or, what man is there of you whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? There are plenty of stones in the Galilee region. Or if he asks a fish, will give him a serpent? So these people listening to the Sermon on the Mount, they understand immediately, well, that's right, none of us would ever give our children snakes and stones when they ask for food at night or for breakfast, because we're trying to give them bread and fish with staples of life in the Galilee region. And they think, oh, wait, if I know how to give good things to my children, well, then God is greater than me. He will give me greater than I could ever imagine. What a great way of teaching this principle. You know, it's so simple, and yet if we, if we truly exercise faith in God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and go in prayer asking for what we really deeply desire, and you'll notice how often our prayers and I'll speak just for me and not for anybody else, how often my prayers are, are shallow. I live beneath my privileges because I end up falling into patterns of just asking for a blessing over my food or that I'll be safe and protected on the roads or that I'll be able to do well with my, my work, kind of surface-level things. But if I'm honest with myself, it's an amazing thing to pause every once in a while and, and break out of that, that prayer cadence that we often get into and to pause and reflect for a moment and say, hmm, what is it that I really, really want? Deep down, what is it that I, that I really want to ask? What am I really seeking after? What door do I really want to knock on? As important as it is to have that breakfast be blessed to strengthen my body, that's an important thing. I'm going to keep praying that. Is there something more? 
that I should be seeking? And what an amazing thing to look at scriptures, for instance, as a meal and say, Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for this meal of which I'm about to partake. Please bless it to nourish me, to strengthen my soul, to give me power to overcome temptation. And when we start asking things that we really want, Heavenly Father, I want salvation. I want to be saved. I want my wife and my children and, and my extended family members and my ward members and my stake members and my students. I want, I want them to feel light and love and truth. Please help me be an instrument to do whatever I can to, to encourage and lift and build. I have found that when my prayers go to those levels, it feels different. I'm pleading with him, not, not for myself, but to help build up the kingdom, and it, it feels more empowering. I feel like there's, there's more hope to get up and go and get that day and, and be an instrument in his hands when my prayers shift to what I really deeply and eternally want, not just what I want right now. One of the most famous teachings in all of the Bible, in, in all of Christianity in general, comes in verse 12, therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's, it's called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's such a simple principle that idea of, of treat them with the same level of kindness and respect that you want to be treated with. It's pretty profound, and our world desperately needs this golden rule today. I've heard people say the golden rule, then there's the platinum rule, do unto others as they would have done unto them. And I have a friend who shares a story about when he was a kid, his sister would always give my friend her favorite music album. For Christmas, and he didn't like that music, but she did, and she was motivated by this principle, well, I should do unto others as I want them to do unto me, and I want them to give me this music album, and so she'd give it to her brother, oh, I don't want this. So I think you get the point here is that we should not treat people in ways we don't want to be treated, and we should think about what do people want? Think about the Ammon story in the Book of Mormon. He did unto others as they would have done unto them. He goes among them and says, how would you like to be served? And he did. He didn't simply serve them the way he wanted to serve them. He served them as they wanted to be served. And that's, I think, bound up in Jesus's message. How do we serve people as they would prefer to be served? Yeah, and I think that's part of the golden rule. If you think of it coming from Jesus, who knows and perceives the thoughts and the intents, knows his audience, I think that's um, beautifully encapsulated there this idea of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, what would you have them do to you? What you want done to you, so the implication is figure out what they want done to them and meet those, meet those needs appropriately. It's, it's a beautiful concept here. Now you go to verse 13 and 14, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. You'll notice the spelling here is not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. It's spelled S-T-R-A-I-T. 
kind of like you would spell the Straits of Magellan or the Strait of Gibraltar. It's this narrow, difficult, at times feels dangerous passageway that's not broad, that every road is going to take you where you need to go. No, it's very specific. Do the things which you have seen me do. Not all roads lead to Rome in this, in this context. So then in 15 through 20, he talks about false prophets, uh, and he, he gives this, this command, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing inwardly, they are ravening wolves. So outwardly, they look calm, lambs, very gentle, but inwardly, they're ravening wolves. We could give her just a brief example. I don't know if Jesus had this one particularly in mind, but about a generation before the time of Jesus, there was another man with the same name, Jesus, who rose up and convinced all these Jews in the Galilean region that if they followed him, they could overthrow the Roman occupiers and it didn't turn out very well. It turns out the Romans didn't like the rebellion, and so they captured many of these rebellious people, including this leader, and they crucified them. Thousands of these Jews were killed because they followed a false leader instead of seeking to learn from the real master. So again, I don't know if Jesus had this in mind, but Jesus was aware that in every generation of, of human history, there are people who will teach you whatever you want to hear for their gain, so they can have more power. And you look at what Jesus does. Does Jesus ever teach things simply so he can get more power? That's not how he operated. So we have to be careful in our world today that we listen to people who have Jesus's best interests in mind and not just their own. It's beautiful. Now, this next concept is one that they would have understood probably better than most of us in our context today because these are people who had to live largely off of the land to one degree or another. So he says, ye shall know them. How do you tell the difference between a good prophet and a false prophet? You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs? of thistles? Do you go to a thistle and start picking figs? No. You know a plant or a tree by its fruits. And by the way, figs and grapes were often the desserts and the sweetest things they know. So it's like the really good stuff. He didn't mention carrots or potatoes or rutabaga or, or vegetables. He's talking about the things that people really are driven to want to eat on a regular basis because of their taste. In today's culture, in, in, in our world society today, there seems to be less of a focus on the fruits and more of people looking to the roots and trying to dig up dirt on people and, and look to the past and say, well, look at what he did here or there or what he did wrong here from our perspective, judging people through a cultural lens from the, the 21st century, looking back in time and holding all these people in the history of the world accountable for our current perspectives. And by their roots, they're finding these perceived problems and plucking out the whole tree. I love this idea that it's by their fruits ye shall know them. You partake of the fruits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Are you going to be able to dig up dirt on past leaders and on past practices on, and on historical events in the church or in any of the scripture characters' lives? Absolutely. Except for Jesus Christ himself, you're going to find struggles in the roots. But it doesn't mean that we pluck up the whole tree and throw it out because we've identified that that root looks bad. At the end of the day, I don't know that I'm qualified to tell you which roots are good and which roots are bad anyway when it comes right down to it. But I can tell when something tastes good, when it sits right, when it strengthens me, when I, when I feel empowered to be a better person because of it, and I love that invitation from Jesus to judge righteously and to distinguish between false and true prophets by their fruits not by going into their past and trying to dig up uh, any dirt that we can on them. So he, f he finalizes that in verse 20 with a statement to, to reiterate what he's taught up above, wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. It's not by their roots ye shall know them. Let's tie this into the Book of Mormon. Alma very famously asks us to run an experiment, to plant a seed, and then I want you to taste the fruit of God's love in your life. So the invitation is, where in your life have you seen the fruits of God in your life? And that should suggest something about the kind of roots that he has helped you to establish. And if you feel like you need more roots, great. Keep nourishing that tree like Alma talked about, and you will be able to experience more fruits, not just for yourself, but other people will also be able to partake of the fruit that you bring forth. Good. Now, the next concept is tied into these fruits. What kind of fruits will they be? Verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It's not enough to say, look at the fruits of my righteousness. I'm saying all the right things in the right way at the right time to the right people. He's saying not everybody who says Lord, Lord is going to get in because it's not who they are. It's tying back into that hypocrite notion that we talked about earlier. You're acting. You're reading a script. You're playing a part on a on a stage, but it's not who you really are. So, verse twenty-two says, "Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works?" And then will I profess unto them, "I never knew you." Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, this is an interesting one because if you read literally, you might think, oh, wait, there's other scriptures that tell Je where Jesus says he empowers his disciples to go out and do these things. And now he's saying that you don't have a shot. And again, the principle here is that it is not enough to do these outward performances. The heart has to be set in the right place, and God knows how to judge. So if you're out there getting the limelight of, preaching in church or doing some great act that gets lots of press, but you do it only for that reason, you have your reward. But if you're doing it to build the kingdom of God, God knows your heart, and he won't be saying what we find in verse 23. So again, just to be clear, Jesus often spoke in such a way that it was to evoke people thinking and conversation, conversing with one another around the principles he was he was talking about, and not simply to just take the explicit, literal meaning and apply it to every last context you could ever imagine. 
And this is also a beautiful tie-in where you get another example, and there are many of them, and we're not pointing all of them out, but this is one of them where Jesus is actually quoting from their hymn book or from their psalms. So in verse 23, it's a direct quote from Psalm 6, verse 8, this idea of depart from me. Uh, he, he's, he's using a, a little segment from a song they would have known. So now it brings all of the rest of the teachings from Psalm 6 kind of to mind when he quotes this little section out of that particular psalm. And now we go to verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. I've never heard this before. Yeah, this is, this is so good. We should have somebody write a song about this with some hand uh, gestures because this is a really good concept. A wise man building his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Now watch the contrast. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. A little concept I learned from uh, a good friend, Clint Mortensen, was if you contrast verse 24 with verse 26, the wise people hear and do. The foolish people hear and don't do. Did you pick up on that? Both groups heard. Both groups were taught. They, they got it. They understood the message, but only one group did the things that they heard, and the other group said, mm, no, I don't need that. It's not for me, and they then build their foundation upon the sand. Verse 24 is really powerful if we connect it back to the Law of Moses. Other Jewish teachers at the time of Jesus used a similar metaphor to talk to people about being on a firm foundation. And what they would say is, you should be built on the law or the Torah. You might remember the law or the Torah was what God revealed to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And Torah really means instructions. It's like the covenantal instructions for fidelity and loyalty to God. And what have we been saying about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is the new Moses, now on a mountain, like Moses was, receiving the upgrade to the law or the Torah or the covenantal instructions. Now, as I said, other ancient Jewish teachers would say things like, you should be founded on the law or the Torah. That makes sense in a Jewish context. That would be a foundation to be founded on the rock of God's covenantal instructions. Here we are, in the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them. So Jesus is now upgrading to 2.0. The law in the Torah is no longer just the Old, Old Testament law of Moses, but is now the Sermon on the Mount. If you follow these upgraded covenantal instructions, you will be on the rock, and you will be saved. The, the law of the gospel. It's such a beautiful principle, and now if you, if you tie it into one of my favorite all-time verses of Scripture from the Book of Mormon, from the Book of Helaman, this incredible speech that uh, Helaman is giving to his two sons, Nephi and Lehi, 
when he says, and now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of, not the law, not even the law of the gospel, but kind of a version now 3.0 from the Book of Mormon's perspective would be upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. And then he gives all these other promises in the rest of verse 12 that uh, tie in beautifully with his conclusion here to the Sermon on the Mount when he says, verse 28, and it came to pass that when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He's a rock to build upon. Yes, the scribes used to share teachings, but they would be quoting past sages or past prophetic authorities. And Jesus shows up, and he's not quoting past prophets. Well, there's a few places where he does. He's speaking on the authority of God, which for these people was really rare. They were expecting a, a preacher to simply share things that would have been quoted and preached by past prophets. He has the authority of God. So, as we conclude these episodes that we've done now on the Sermon on the Mount, our hope and our prayer, not just for us, but for all of us, is that we can take these attributes of Christ that he has put on a silver platter for us and shown us here are the upgrades to the law, here are Christian behaviors, here, here are exit ramps off the covenant path to be aware of and to avoid, here are ways to not go into character and be a hypocrite, but to do things secretly so that your Father which seeth in secret will reward you openly. As we take all of these things and, and take those now to the Lord, in sincere, earnest study, fasting and prayer, and say, I really want to be a better person. I want to be more like the Savior. Help me know what I could do in my life today, this week, this month, this year, to, to more fully apply these teachings in my life so that I can more firmly build my foundation on the rock of my Redeemer, whereon if men build, they cannot fall. I love that promise from the Book of Mormon, and that promise is yours as well as everybody's today who's willing to do that, and we leave that assurance with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved.